now that I know that you're a Magic the Gathering fan, uh, next time we were in person at a convention, I will bring a blue control deck just to annoy you. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm mad or impressed yet. Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanty Show Screen Scouts. Let's go steal a podcast. Yay! <laughs> I'm Sean. I'm Brandon. And on today's show, we have the most delightful, wonderful, amazing Mitchie Trota, multi-award winning editor from many different things, uh, and a really awesome person who has been on this show before. So welcome back. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm super excited for the topic of the show today. Wonderful! So, today, we are going to be discussing Leverage Redemption, which is airing right now on IMDb TV, um, specifically the first eight episodes of what's supposed to be a 16-episode uh, season, uh, was released on July 9th, 2021, and we should be expecting the next eight sometime in September, I believe. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. But before we do that, friendly reminder for folks who want to hear from you, uh, and we've been saying this over and over, so please get those thoughts in, especially if you're a Leverage fan. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this this first half of the season, if you've seen it yet. Uh, go to skiffingfanny.com slash listener suggestions. We're putting together that mailbag episode, so we need those questions, topics, suggestions, thoughts, all that stuff in there. So stick it in there, and then Brandon and I will talk about it. Cool. So let's get into the actual discussion. Leverage Redemption returns several years after the end of the original series Leverage, which ran for... Five seasons, if I'm not mistaken. So we are returning to these this lovable band of misfits several years afterward, after uh, their mastermind, Nathan Ford, has passed away. And on the one-year anniversary of his passing, the rest of the crew has decided to visit Sophie Devereaux, who has been in mourning in her own way, struggling to, to figure out what she wants to do next, when our favorite thieves... Parker, Alec Hardison, and Elliot Spencer decide maybe we just want to get back into the thing. And that's when they run into a lawyer named Harry Wilson, who is in the middle of stealing a painting in an art gallery, when they decide, hmm, maybe he's really the project that we need to be working on. And what proceeds is the attempt to turn him into a mastermind, an inside man, as they uh, foil the nefarious doings of, among other people, a Martin Screlly analog who likes uh, a Magic the, a Magic the Gathering-esque card game, a Sackler family analog who is in love with his reputation being bolstered by uh, putting paintings in art galleries, an assassin who attempts to perform a hit during a Halloween parade, and so much more. And it's fun and it's beautiful, and I love every single moment of every single episode, and I can't wait to talk more about it. I, I, I could figure that immediately. Like, oh, was Brandon going to like this? Yes. Yes, Brandon was going to like it. I, the second the first episode hit, I was like, yep, Brandon is going to be sold immediately. I remember watching the first episode in the middle of the night, and then pausing and going, hey, that's definitely Richard Sackler. I'm going to enjoy this a great deal, because he deserves it. <laughs> In real life, I definitely want to ask Mitchie, who, I, who I'm willing to bet is like the number one super fan on the planet Earth of Leverage and all things Leverage. <laughs> How did you feel about this? the first eight episodes of this so far? I thought, honestly, it gave me a lot of, uh, it made me feel a lot like watching the first two seasons of the original Leverage. And I mean that in, in a good way. It was very clear from the first two episodes that this, this was leverage. It was spot on. It had all of those touch points. You had Elliot saying, it's, you know, it's a very distinctive fill in the blank. Hardison has clearly leveled up. He's not just a hacker anymore. He's, he's a real life oracle. Uh, <laughs> from DC <laughs> Comics, like you know, he he's he's this close to being like the actual yeah you know, the actual mind of the machine. It's it was actually nice seeing how all the characters had definitely grown in the supposed eight years since we had previously seen them after you know the uh, the last episode of season five. But they were still at the core who we remember them being. 
So that was nice. It's not like they they had been frozen in amber. They had clearly had life experiences, particularly for Elliot, Hardison, and Parker. They have leveled up quite a bit in their game. And even without Nathan Ford around, and even though Hardison isn't around for uh, the latter six episodes of the season, because... You know, Aldous Hodge is a guy in very high demand. Uh, he's yeah. It's been wonderful seeing his career take off since Leverage ended. And I am super looking forward to him as Hawkman in the next DC movie. But um, they still kept the formula that works. But they didn't try to replace anyone. You still have, you know, our original four as Grifter, uh, Hitter, hacker and uh grifter hitter hacker and thief i didn't feel like they were trying to make wilson into a mastermind he was the inside man and that was a completely different set of skills that didn't preclude him from learning how to be a mastermind and learning how to run a con but he was coming at it from a different kind of insider knowledge that uh in a similar way to nathan ford having insider knowledge about Khan's working because he used to be an insurance uh, investigator, insurance fraud investigator. And even bringing on Hardison's uh, foster, younger foster sister, who I believe they're implying is pretty much the same age that Hardison was when he started with the Leverage Gang, or maybe just like a titch younger. But mm -hmm. she's still, you know, she's a hacker. But she's also more than that. She has her own skill set. She, you know, she's really good at, you know, I think they had built her in all the promos as the maker. They're not trying to replace anybody from the original team, but they're still filling in those patches just with different characters who get to be their own people. I love that they uh, address the fact that Brianna worries about having to be Hardison for the team. And um, I believe in one of the later episodes, uh, they tell her like, no, I'm sorry, we should have said this to you earlier. We don't need you to be Hardison. We need you to be who you are, because that's why you're part of this team. So yeah. I, I appreciate that is sort of the spirit that they're bringing in. They brought to this uh, to this whole reboot. It's they're not trying to replace or revisit where we've already been. They want to give us the characters we're familiar with and for us to see how they've grown and to see how the world has changed and how they're reacting to that. Something that, that Mitchie was suggesting in, in what you were talking about there that I thought was really interesting about the show was how important it is in this show, the, the, the theme of, of learning and teaching, because there are tons of that happening throughout, right? The first two episodes, you have Noah Wiles' character, Harry Wilson, basically being taught how to be a con man because he's never done this before in his life. And he's having to be taught by a number of different characters, different aspects. But then you also have Brianna Casey, uh, played by Lee Shannon again, who is figuring out how to be part of this team, but also teaching, at some cases, uh, either learning from Parker how to do heisty stuff like sleight of hand, but also having to teach Parker and some of the others about interests of of her own the the card game job for example in which literally the she's the one who knows the most about the card game and it's her knowledge that ends up helping to solve the case or to, to not solve the case I guess and more more particularly to to effectively get the mark the Martin Martin Shkreli douche nozzle that is there in this movie <laughs> or whatever term we want to use for him <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think that works Bless John Rogers and the rest of the Leverage writers. They didn't even bother to be subtle with who the <laughs> villains are in this new world. It, it is I I I pre one of the that's one of the things that I think we all loved so much about the original Leverage is that it was like yeah the villains are corporations. They're rich, privileged, qu quite often white men who feel that the rules don't apply to them so they can break them with impunity. And I really love how they've, uh, how they mentioned that the game is different and more dangerous now, because it's not even that these people are breaking the rules. It's that they're changing the rules. So they're not even worried about getting caught because they have now bribed the right people. They've changed the right laws. 
you know, that nothing, it doesn't apply to them at all. It's up to the ante. And even with Brianna as the youngest person on the team, I love that she specifically says what her perspective is as a Gen Zer, where she's like her young, her earliest memory, earliest memories are 9-11, you know, living through multiple economic crashes, multiple wars. I mean, I think about what it, what my memories are as a Gen Xer and I'm like, yep, it's, it's all of that plus all of this other stuff on top of that. And I love how she says, like, it's not that she's scared of confronting these new villains. Yes, she's like, oh, yeah, she's already been screwing with the system and got on the FBI's watch list uh, because of it. But what scares her is that it can't be fixed and that the injustices can't be addressed that there's no possible justice to be found. That's really what scares her. There's a there's an aspect in that that I think was interesting because at the end of the the fifth season, and obviously we get that uh, brought up again in the first two episodes, but this idea of leverage international is a thing that now exists, that there are multiple crews. And there's this sense of like, leverage is like a Band-Aid on a massive global problem of very wealthy and powerful people getting and all the way from the bottom up in terms of those powers and wealth, but getting away with doing horrible things to people, you know, which may or may not be fully legal, but they get away with it nonetheless. And this is why one of the episodes, I can't remember which one that cracked me up the most was when they, uh, the tower job, right. Where they, oh, they yes. get them by hiding the, the clause that allows them to walk away from the contract that they'd signed. Right. And it's, it's all just buried in there. And when they go, look, why didn't you, did you not just read it? And it's like, well, part of this, the whole premise of this is that these are people who have been in power so long that they just think the world kind of revolves around them. They don't have to do this because they're the ones that have been playing the game. They don't expect the game to be played on them. And it does. And there's other stuff in that episode too. And so I love that that is part of this here is, you know, some of these episodes, they're deliberately trying to use the system against the very people who have have created the system that allowed them to do what they do in the first place. Yeah. And like one of the things that I really adore about uh Leverage Redemption in particular is it's very easy when a show has been running for four or five years already to decide when you're bringing it back to just give people the thing that they already like. But I do feel like Redemption has made very dramatic uh shifts in the way that the show actually performs its themes simply by introducing different characters and uh, having them perform their roles in unique ways. Like uh, Michi mentioned, having Brianna on the team means that they get to um, not only observe the act of hacking several years uh, in advancement, uh, but to also have a conversation about what these kinds of what the kinds of things that are uh, happening in the wider world around us uh, have affected people of other generations, people who are younger and have more recent memories of some of the most traumatic uh, social events in their lifetime. But one of the things that really stands out to me in that sense is Harry Wilson as a character is fundamentally different from Nathan Ford in a lot of very minor ways that are all also very dramatic. Being a lawyer means that instead of being the person who observes whether someone else has committed a crime, he's the person who is often helping other people commit crimes and has spent a great deal of time not liking it and knows those rules because he's part of the system that makes it easy for those rules to change. And as a result, the show fundamentally like asks this unique question that that is totally different from the original series in my opinion where um Nate's like primary driver is I want to stick it to these bad guys because when I needed people to defend me when I needed people to stick up for my son when my son was dying no one would do that because they didn't want to just use the power that they had to do good and there's this very strong sense in that series of Will I be whole if I do bad things to bad people? Mm. But uh, Harry's drive is completely different. His drive is, will I be whole if I do good things for good people at the expense of bad people? But the show is still the same. And that, like, that shift in perspective is actually very intriguing to me. 
because Harry is often very naive in ways that Nate isn't, but that like outside perspective is good not only for people to get into the series from the beginning and feel like they have someone to like be their uh, surrogate when things happen, but it also uh, helps reframe the fact that these big wigs are doing like big, dramatically hurtful things. And there are people who are inside the system who often do not know the stakes until they actually see the people who are suffering. And I thought that that was really neat. Yeah, I thought that um, I really liked how at one point, you know, Harry, uh, I think it's like, uh, it actually, I think it's the tower job where Harry, you know, goes to Sophie and says, we're actually going pretty hard on that on this guy. Is that like you know we're we're using his we're using his phobias, which you know are were triggered by and by a negligent event that he caused. Um, I gotta say, watching that episode right after the Miami Tower collapse was just like oh. I know that it's not about this because there was, I remember that there was a construction, there was a similar construction issue. Uh, wasn't it? I think we're like, there was a, a crane fell off uh, a building, you know, the, the foundation, you know, the, it had been put together shoddily. So it didn't even make it all the way up and several people died. But seeing that episode right after the Miami tower collapse just was like, Oh God, it's not that this show is can tell the future. It's that this has already happened. It just so happens that the episode came out right when another iteration of that kind of accident happened. But yeah, mm-hmm. because the um, Harry is at Harry asked Sophie is like, is this okay? I mean, we're doing some pretty bad stuff here. And Sophie looks at him and she's very serious. She says like, yeah, we're, we're bad guys. Don't ever forget that. We're not, you know, we are not actually the good guys. We're bad guys. We're breaking the law and we are harming people. Don't, you know, don't forget what we're doing. And I thought that was really interesting from Sophie in particular, considering the episode of the White Rabbit in season five, which is one of the episodes that I'm always really conflicted about because of how it's so deeply psychologically manipulative of the mark who mm-hmm. is not actually a bad guy. He's, he's making ba- he's making decisions that are deeply informed by trauma and guilt uh, and knowing how much, how much they pushed that envelope and how Sophie was uncomfortable with it because of how close they got to things going terribly, terribly wrong. It was very interesting to see her be like, Oh no, th- this is what we're doing. Just don't be under any illusions about who we are and, and the consequences of what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, this is part of why I think I, you know, I come I come to the show much later than both of you, because you guys mm-hmm. were watching it much earlier when it was basically airing, I imagine, or very close to it. And so for me, this was like the last month of starting this show. And I think one of the things that I found really interesting is all of what we're shown in the show from start to finish, or even through this season, are things that have happened, like what you're saying. They're things that have happened. They're things that are going to happen again. Uh, maybe not exactly as we're shown, but what we get is somewhat of kind of the uh, the fantasy that a lot of us wish we could do something about these things, mm-hmm. but we don't we don't have the expertise or the power or the money or the resources. We don't have the 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 magic team that can get together and perform the appropriate heist to deal with these things. You know, we can't go into you know the Met and steal a painting to screw over a, a, a wealthy donor, sort of like in the the, the too many Rembrandts job when which is tied to that somewhat. And so there's this element of watching them kind of grapple with what it means to do crime, you know, to bad people in the service of helping good people. It's gives it gives for me like this really interesting outlet because the world is I in a lot of ways I feel a lot like Brianna Casey, which is like it just feels really, really dark and hopeless. But for some reason watching these people like take down, you know, like an annoying pharma bro is kind of like a nice cathartic release. There's something really powerful in that, that this show I think elicits from its 
start and brings up again and again just because of how much it ties to things that are real you know the tower job of watching these people get taken down who literally you know did a shoddy job on a building project and killed however many number of people and did horrible things to people and then threatened immigrants that with deportation if they if they didn't you know hide what actually happened mm-hmm. there's catharsis it's, I all that rambling was just there's catharsis of seeing people that are lovely analogs of real world evil monsters get their just desserts from people who are not held back by the law by by ethical restrictions you know any of those things like most of us would not want to break the law in order to get somebody who did technically didn't break the law to do what they did most of us wouldn't mm-hmm. do that we'd want yeah. to but we, we wouldn't necessarily do it. But it's nice to see that there's a group, this magical group, uh, Leverage International, who's happy to do it. <laughs> we'll break the law for you. <laughs> and that's uh, the other thing, right? Like, before season one of Leverage, there wasn't really any kind of catharsis like this in media, uh, which, was, which was what made the original series, like, so refreshing that you were seeing these like horrible atrocities be- essentially being ripped from the headlines um, to some extent. And you were seeing people actually like, fight back against it and actually get some resolution to those issues. And when the-, when the series ended, a lot of people, myself included, went, it would be really nice to see X thing taking place in the news right now get the leverage treatment because mm-hmm. that person deserves it. And the, the thing that is so rewarding about redemption as a result we, is that we get to say, I know who this person is and I know that this person deserves to suffer like this and I hope that they suffer like this in real life because we've been essentially conditioned by the original series to to like ask these kinds of questions about these situations and go these people do not deserve to get away with this and we wish that the thing that we saw was the way that they could suffer. And now we get to like get that experience in, in the series. And I'm really excited to see where it continues to go because like there are so many other people that I want to see pastiche in the series now who really <laughs> deserve to suffer. Like you're re- like <laughs> Leverage Redemption spoiled me in the too many Rembrandt's job because giving me Richard Sackler on episode one was like a lot and now i need to see everybody suffer i need to see all of the bad guys in the real world actually get their comeuppance because like going straight for the real life situation of richard sackler is remarkably complex in ways that i can't even immediately fathom but when we witnessed that in the news the first time we were like this is very scummy and somebody doesn't deserve to to get away with this and for somebody to watch episode one of Leverage Redemption and go, this is what it would look like if they had suffered, is very rewarding emotionally. Especially, and if you are like, for folks who actually love studying how cons work, mm-hmm. yeah, one of the fun things about Leverage is looking and seeing if you can actually recognize cons from, you know, from history. The fact that they brought up the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist, and that's part of the first episode, the whole the Rembrandts, like it ties into like, no, this is actual history that happened in the art world in Boston. Um, And Mm -hmm. also just the fact that art, I think that, I think the choice of the first con being related to art is deeply significant for the characters because art is how, like art theft is how Sophie and uh, Nathan met and fell in love shooting each other the first time because she was a thief and you know at the time he was an insurance (laughs) fraud investigator but Mm -hmm. i mean art was sophie and nate's origin story was their connection and art came up a lot in the original series as something that bonded them uniquely but also like art was something that hardison clearly had skills in it was one of those things where they would constantly play with the perception of Elliot as the uh, pretty much all he does is hit things, but he's actually incredibly intellectual. He understands art. He knows cooking. It doesn't matter how much crap he gives Hardison about Star Trek. He also knows Star Trek and comics. Like it's clearly dropped throughout the series that he knows exactly what Hardison is talking about. 
he's just playing it. He's playing the jock role because it annoys Hardison, you know, and, and you've got Parker who lives to steal art. Like her, the cutest thing in the world is her complaining about how she doesn't get to climb vents in strange vents anymore, because we'll know it at the beginning of the series, Elliot Hardison and Parker aren't really in the field anymore. Elliot and Parker mm-hmm. are out in the field in terms of training the different le- the different branches of Leverage International. Using food trucks. Yes, using food <laughs> trucks. I love that Elliot gets to do that thing that we see him talk about in um, season the season five episode where he is a, a chef chef's instructor and he talks about how learning about food literally saved his life mm-hmm. after coming back from all of the uh, unspeakable things that he was doing uh, at when he was briefly doing wet work. But yeah, he's using the food trucks to like to both give uh, veterans a uh, a foot a foothold back into the regular world and to give them a starting point. And also, those food trucks are incredibly useful multiple mobile Lucilles. There's no one Lucille anymore. It's an entire army of Lucilles. It's so brilliant. I love it a lot. So can I ask, out of curiosity, I know some of the the clear real-world reference. Do all of the episodes have a real-world referent? I'm convinced that they do. I Mm -hmm. might know all of them. Okay. What is episode five, the paranormal activity jobs, real world reference? Oh. Because I am, it's, it's a weird episode. <laughs> because I love this one a lot. Paranormal activity job uh, is about a young woman who accidentally burns her house down after what she believes is a haunting. And Parker actually finds her after like she runs out of the house and accidentally gets hit by a car, unfortunately, and is like still hung up on the idea that she was actually being haunted by a dead relative for a a past negligence that she committed, only for the team to reveal to this young lady that she was actually being conned. An uncle and nephew arrangement of uh, a con artist were attempting to like con people out of their houses all over New Orleans just before Halloween uh, by pulling this exact same trick. And in the business of attempting to prove that by staging their own haunting in their new base, they not only reveal themselves to uh, these two crooks, but eventually discover that they are in service of an assassin who is attempting to secure these houses specifically so he can assassinate uh, a district attorney who is going to be at a parade taking place on Halloween night. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie to you. That is indeed a very weird episode. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot because I always <laughs> I dig episodes in uh, procedural dramas where there is a weird thing that is not supposed to be explained. Oh, it's actually just this perfectly normal thing. I'm confident that it relates to something, but I also don't think that we would know who that assassin is because he's an assassin. But I thought that that was a very interesting episode personally. I don't think the assassin was meant to be the analog. I think the bumble, the fraud being committed upon people who had just lost a loved one, basically because it was mentioned that the the uncle and nephew, and previously had been the uncle and the uh, the uncle and his brother had been pulling this sort of real estate scam in New Jersey where they were originally mm-hmm. based, where you know they come, you know they scan listings for you know, whether or not somebody has recently passed away if they own property, they go in and they check it out. Uh, and if it looks like there's not a huge amount of family involved, then they would set up the, ha- the haunting, convince the, uh, the person who had inherited the property to sell it at a low price because nobody wants to live in a haunted home, buy the home and then flip it and sell it for a, a, a for a huge profit. Like, that I don't think ha- I think that's the beauty of the show is that while we can pick out specific analogs for very specific public figures, episodes like the paranormal job are showing crimes that happen because there are people who go out and take advantage of those who are in like emotionally and financially vulnerable positions. Um, and all it takes is like a little because it's not like this guy and his nephew were even like they were super bumbly. 
which kind of gives it away a little too early for me that they were not actually the real villain. They were way too bumbly, like making all sorts of noise. And, and you know, as soon as it looks like the con mm-hmm. is going to go too easily, something bad is going to happen. I did personally feel like the district attorney political figure who they were being who was being set up to be assassinated felt like an analog to AOC for me, or at least yeah, an analog. Yeah, you're like, oh, you know, it's this you know this very uh, very progressive uh, political figure from New Jersey who is making powerful people, including the mob, nervous. And like the fact that she was popular with young people too. The pop- the fact that Brianna knew who she was by name and was excited specifically because she was yes, there. yes. I do feel like this was more of a character episode than actually. It was more about the characters in the con this time because mm-hmm. we had I agree. Par- we had Parker calling back to the episode uh, episode in season two with Luke Perry as the fake psychic, where Parker said ah. that you know she's like, oh yeah, well you know there was this time that I used I used to believe in psychics, and you know a, a you know fake psychic really hurt me by bringing up some stuff, but my friends were there to show me how it was a con. And this is, you know, so we want to show you because it is not your fault that your grandmother died because, you know, this this poor girl is blaming herself for, for her grandmother's death because she wanted to go out and get a cup of coffee. And her grand and when she came back, her grandmother had passed away um, and she was you know, filled with guilt for, uh, for, you know, for looking away for just one moment because she needed a break. I feel like that also was a really human moment that after the pandemic, so many people would be able to relate to the, I'm just so tired. I just need five minutes to myself. And you look away for five minutes and the worst possible thing happens. That felt really heavy. I'm not going to lie to you. Like, I mean, it's very difficult for me to say I have a favorite episode because I love all of these episodes. But this <laughs> this episode in particular uh, stuck with me, uh, first of all, as a fan, because I just love the fact that Parker had that moment of like to make that decision that I'm going to get somebody out of a situation where mm-hmm. I felt hopeless once. But... You are right. In like in the wake of the pandemic, the thing that hits me the most about that episode is there are moments where I'm just like really overwhelmed being one of only two people in this household and like trying to like do what is necessary while also just being very overwhelmed and very tired and very exhausted and very anxious about everything. To be told that it's not, it, it doesn't make you a bad person to feel mm-hmm. like you need a break. I really appreciated that. Yeah, I didn't really click with the ep- with that episode that much until that moment. Although I gotta say, Sophie's New Orleans, <laughs> uh, you know, heiress drawl was the the whole dramatic yeah. thing was. It was beautiful. I missed Sophie's cons, and we did. We still get to see some callbacks in, uh, like, particular the card game, to how she can be terrible unless she's actually enacting the con. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh-huh. The the sonnet that, oh, that she reads. Yeah, because <laughs> I love that where they're they're trying desperately to like feed into this like eccentric card game maker like guru he's like he's all of these things and they're trying to feed into him to to not to make sure that he doesn't sell the company to evil pharma bro by Mm -hmm. playing on his kind of like on his vanity but not in a like horrific way more in a like i really want to impress you i want you to feel like this thing that you're part of matters and there's a great speech at the end that uh brianna gives which is fantastic and it is the moment when he's about to sell everything and she just goes on this speech about how like no no no, like this thing that you created you know it's not just a business it's this thing that we all are connected to it's for all the like rejects of the world that don't feel connected to the world around them but here they do they feel part of something and it moves him so much that he decides that he's not he's going to go back on his word to sell the farmer bro and let continue to maintain the company because of how much of an impact he's had that whole episode is I, honestly that's my favorite episode of the entire that that ner- that whole episode was a love letter it was a love letter to the nerd to community nerds. it really was i mean like john yeah john rogers is absolutely a nerd 
I feel like two uh, the two strongest speeches given throughout the entire series were given by Hardison at the end of episode one and by Brianna uh, at the end of the card mm-hmm. game. But uh, I will just say quick shout out to whoever decided to uh, dress Harry Wilson up as a self-important creator of this fantasy world and the costume they had him come oh out in. I screamed. My husband was in the kitchen and he came and he's like, what? I'm like, you have to look at the costume. <laughs> the ridiculous beard. The hat is what the hat and the suspenders are what got me. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I was up at like 1.30 in the morning watching that episode when, when I watched it and shrieked. And I think I woke up my neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> So I have a lot of feelings about the card game job, not only because that costume is awesome, but like, first of all, the thing that stands out to me uh, the most is, one, as as a big Magic the Gathering fan, I just love that a card game was here, and that it seemed to have rules instead of actually Mm -hmm. just being cards just moving Mm -hmm. on a table. But I also dug it because Martin Shkreli was the, the... past that we're having in this episode because even though the real life analog isn't a card game it is actually still referencing a thing that martin shkreli actually did do which i thought was really cool which was what i didn't get i didn't get that part what did he do because it's a totally separate like it's a totally separate space but he bought a limited edition wu-tang clan album oh that for like millions of dollars in auction taunted people on Twitter several like for several days in a row about the fact that he's the only person who'll ever have it and then streamed it live on like Periscope or something like that just to like shove it in people's faces I'm really glad that that was the thing that they tried to do in this episode was to like take an artistic expression that uh, he was attempting to taint and make hollow by not actually caring about it and make that the thing that they were going to get him on was the thing that I was like personally fulfilled by Oh, yeah. that's great. I hadn't even, I completely forgot about the Wu-Tang uh, album yeah. thing because it really was like, there's so many levels in this episode about like talking about, uh, you know, you have the creator who really was idealistic and loved his original vision, but now is sort of jaded because he's, he's like, oh, it's become commercial and co-opted. I, it, doesn't, it doesn't really, it's only a business now. It doesn't really have meaning. You know, and it's not mm-hmm. because he's a bad person. He's he's just, he's cynical. He's a cynical artist who saw the thing that he loved eaten by capitalism. But so, which makes Brianna's speech. It felt like that is that is what so many of us are fighting for in SFF and fandom and nerd culture is to keep something open and available to people that has made us feel like we belong somewhere at points in our lives where we felt unmoored, where we felt under misunderstood and unloved. And it wasn't that gatekeeping version of nerd culture. It was the like, no, we, this, this thing matters to us because we love it. And because we didn't feel alone anymore because of all the other people who we met through it and helped us realize that we're not, that it's okay to be weird and different because all these other people are weird and different too. Right. Like I love that they were very careful about that, but it's also a very interesting conversation about the push pull between artistic vision and capitalism. Mm -hmm. Like there are two moments in the episode that really, really stuck with me. Uh, Mm. First was uh, Sophie reading the poem, because obviously I'm a poet. I'm going to have a lot of feelings about it. It's a great poem. It is really dope. Yeah. <laughs> like the poem is actually astoundingly written. I like, mm-hmm. I kind of yeah. want to find the writer who wrote that poem and shake their hand because it was really rad. But the thing that I love about that moment is that meanwhile, Parker, who is on the job, who is about to steal a thing, is not simply following rules in this moment, but is actually getting lost in that poem. And that's how we as the audience witness that this is a poem that the author wrote about their own personal experience struggling Mm -hmm. with what appeared to be mental illness and like going through like this like deep depressive moment in their lives and finding value through making that I thought was really rewarding but the thing that really got me about Brianna's speech at the end 
is as a person of color and as, and as a fan of leverage as someone who really really loves leverage uh, because uh, of characters like Hardison who like give us an opportunity to see ourselves being our as nerdy and as uh, smart and as thoughtful as possible Brianna really stuck with me in that episode because it felt like at that point I was seeing even more of myself as a nerd through Brianna even even more than I've ever seen uh through Hardison mm. and I'm sure I'm reading I'm sure I'm not reading into it but I might be reading into it but that speech really gave me the impression that part of what was also being communicated there was how queer nerds also find community yes. in, in these kinds of spaces and as somebody who kind of valued Magic the Gathering as an outlet for that as well, and values like science fiction and fantasy fandom in general as an opportunity to actually express myself through that sense, I really, really appreciated that. And I really wanted the episode to be more overt about it, but I get <laughs> I get that, like, that was enough at that moment, but I wish that they just, like, said the whole word. I, I just have so many feelings about that episode. Oh, I really hope they follow through with that thread in the next eight episodes. Right? It'll be very interesting. And I do want to say, Brandon, now that I know that you're a Magic the Gathering fan, uh, next time we were in person at a convention, I will bring a blue control deck just to annoy you. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm mad or impressed yet. The fact that you have a control deck, I'm not sure if I hate you or love you yet. I, I oh look forward God. to that. I we, we will make this happen, you know. I look forward <laughs> yeah. to this a great deal. The card game in this isn't just a card game. It has a basically like a Ren Fair every yeah. every year, Ooh, right? Where, right. Where, they, where they show up and they they have like jousting and card championship and they have all like costumes and all of this stuff and they hang out in this little community with a castle on this property that you know, all of it. There's all this stuff. There's tons of stuff there. And I've never seen anything like that for Magic the Gathering. And so I submit that currently the card game in this episode is the greatest card game on Earth. <laughs> Just a little bit, yes. Can we give a really quick shout out of love to Elliot in the joust? The jousting <laughs> oh, Lord. Oh my god. I thought we were going to see Elliot on a horse. What we got was even better. Was Elliot wearing a one of those inflatable, like, floaty dragon <laughs> things and having yeah. to, like, run across the field at his opponent. <laughs> and then the, def- the poor dragon getting deflated. And then we, f- you know, it's a totally comic moment. And then we flip to this really spectacular broadsword fight with Elliot yeah. in, f- Elliot's in full armor. He's using his gauntlets correctly. Like, and it's it's that hero moment that we all love to get with Elliot. Also, th- that's, that sword fight was the thing that reminded me that I'm pretty confident that, like, most of the Renfair elements in that episode are references to Dean Devlin's other television show, The Outpost, which I haven't finished. Haven't seen it yet! <laughs> And there's definitely some other, you know, like, so I think there's some librarians references here because of Noah Weil and a couple of other things, which I've not seen the librarians, but I, I read the trivia. So this is why I know. You should. <laughs> I would also, Jonathan Frakes directs one of the episodes in this. And I don't, I don't know if he had a cameo in anything in this particular mm. of episodes, but I know he has been in other episodes of Leverage and I would love to see Jonathan Frakes come back in some way because not just as director like as a character in in anything because anytime that man shows up i like the joy in my soul increases by a hundred percent because i just adore jonathan frakes and also he deserves way more credit for being a pretty fantastic director than he has been given yeah i mean he directed the double-edged sword job and a lot of things are happening in that episode i had mixed feelings about that episode like, I thought the character moments, particularly between Elliot and Brianna, again, like, Brianna, I think they were really good in how they wrote Brianna's character to, you know, she's having her own moments of doubt and growing into herself as a person. But they have her doing so in a way that calls back to some of the other characters' previous moments of growth in the original series. Like, uh, because in the double-edged sword job, what we have is a examination of data privacy, 
you know, there's there's some touching of police violence, and I wish they had done more with that. Like, mm -hmm. I wish they had done something to the cop who was chasing his uh, his wife, uh, who was trying to get out of their abusive relationship. But she has this moment where she's like, yeah, you know, I really hate guys like this who are you know, mining people's data and using it without their permission because it all it's doing is drilling us down to our worst to our worst moments. And she uses that exact phrase, our worst moments, which is what you see this look. And, you know, uh, Christian Kane is really good at these micro expressions as Elliot, because that look just crosses his face because that was the exact phrase he used in season three when the team found out about his past with Damien Moreau. And he was just like, you know, the worst moment, the worst thing I've ever done in my life was for Damien Moreau. And we still to this day don't know what it is, although we can probably guess. To me, it was very clear that that was the memory that Elliot had when he was listening to Brianna talk about not wanting to be judged on her worst moments. And, you know, he gives her, you know, he gives her a really nice, like, you know, he's like, look, you know, all of us have a past. What matters is who we are and what we are doing now to correct, you know, to correct for that. It's all like, that is a really good moment, but I'm not, I wasn't sure that the way that they handled the programmer was actually, was really all, I felt very conflicted about that because he wasn't an out bad guy. I got mm -hmm. more of the sense that, you know, this is someone who also had, who also had, diff who had a great deal of anxiety and difficulty relating to other people. And seeing as how they, how well they had handled Parker as someone who didn't know how to relate to people who had done thing, you know, who had done bad things, but wasn't some sort of irredeemable person because of it. It was weird to see them treat that the villain of that episode this way. I think part of what bothered me about that episode is something you brought up like a minute ago, which is we focus on this guy who is doing something bad, but is there's nothing in the episode, as you say, that marks him clearly as a bad person. He's doing a thing that is morally questionable, mm -hmm. but he's not running I mean, other than he's kind of sometimes can be persnickety. He's not a monster. He's not running around running over children. He's not doing any, he's not collapsing buildings by, you know, breaking the rules. But the very beginning of that episode, we have somebody who is a bad person and the episode dumps it. Yeah. Yeah. He's just kind of dealt with. So one of the things that kind of bothered me about this episode is... The idea that it would have been a lot more rewarding if this was perhaps the one, the one time in this season even where the end of the episode is we can resolve this without somebody suffering. We can resolve this mm -hmm. with somebody learning that this was improper and just deciding no longer to do it. Mm -hmm. But also what kind of rubbed me the wrong way, and I'm, this is not me like bashing the show or casting aspersions on anybody, the two villains who I feel like they get uh, some very weird and hostile treatment in these first eight episodes. Both of them just so happen to be people of color. Because there's also the uh, gambling. The rolling on the river job. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk, we should definitely talk about that. I mean, I like the episode. I, I think that on its face, very functionally, it stands out that like this character would be the bad guy. Like it, it I'm not saying that He's not a bad person. He hasn't done absolutely mm -hmm. terrible things. But they show very overtly at two very like deliberate points in the story reminds us of the fact that he's a person of color. Once when he speaks to Sophie and like uh, admits that his greatest frustration in uh, his business life is that white people can consistently change the rules on him whenever they want and that has made it difficult for him to continue to work. But then later on, when Parker is like beginning the con at the gun club, when she looks him in the eye and says, we've been here since New Orleans was a part of France, you weren't. There's a lot oh. of very hostile energy in that kind of line. And I get why she did it. I'm not saying that like Parker's decision as a character was improper. She's on a con. But from this, from the episode's perspective, in a wider sense, I would have mm -hmm. loved for some part of that conversation to observe the fact that, yes, 
the, the fact that you had to go through this kind of hardship in order to succeed is in fact bad and unhealthy. But this is not the way to resolve it. No one ever confronts him with that fact. I wish, like, I wanted the episode to call that out much more strongly yeah. because, yes, absolutely, it's frustrating watching your parents struggle to build a business because they're, you know, they're brown immigrants and white people keep changing, you know, keep changing the rules, asking for bribes. And I think the implication that he had lost his seat as a congressman for taking bribes. His bitterness was not that he was caught, but that he gets caught and lost, loses his job when clearly we all know what happens when it's, you know, a white, uh, a white politician who will get a slap on the wrist and not and not automatically lose their job. So he I think because the episode didn't dive into this more into the story, having a chance to. Uh, to really confront him with the yes, you've been wronged. This the way that you know the way that people of color are treated in this system is terrible. But what you're doing is causing more harm, particularly at you know as you are the child of immigrants of brown immigrants who is trying to rob black people of their homes in New Orleans after Katrina. There's like, none of this is okay. And if we'd had that moment where he says, yeah, it kind of sucks, but that's the way the game is played anyway, I'm going to go ahead and do it. It wouldn't have felt as mushy and murky yeah, because you would have had him choose, choose at that moment. Yeah, if he had acknowledged that I'm just playing by the rules that uh, they have given me, and I acknowledge that it's hurting other, pe- it, uh, it's hurting people who I should be in solidarity mm-hmm. with, and I admit that I don't care. Uh, that would have worked. But also, what like what kind of rubs me the wrong way about it is, from a story perspective, all he gets to see at the end of the episode is two white people he has never he has never met mm-hmm. stole all all of the money from his. Yeah. Fault. And that's the part that sucks. Like, that's yeah. the part that sucks. That from a wider narrative perspective, this is a story of an, a, an admittedly crooked person of color being conned by a, a pair of white people immediately after admitting to someone that his greatest frustration is that white people continue to come out on top uh, ahead of him, uh, regardless of the criminal activities that they've engaged in. And that sucks. And it ties into, I'm sorry, it ties into what we see in the double-edged sword job, because again, the one who really gets caught and suffers is the Asian man who created this AI and this whole program. But the ones who were facilitating the blatantly immoral use of the technology that he was creating was his, you know, was the white dude who has been his friend since college and was the one who was reaching out to these like shady, uh, secure, you know, security paramilitary groups offering. It just felt like that switch to what, oh, here's what's really going on was way too out of left field because I was expecting the whole thing to tie into some kind of police corruption and law, law enforcement abusing the technology, right? And it's weird how it shifts any culpability or comeuppance from law enforcement who is clearly shielding an abusive cop or the, the you know the white corporate interests who are trying to you know who are trying to skirt regulations about data privacy and image use to resting on the anxiety ridden admittedly you know just is more interested in the program in creating a program and what it can do than how it will affect people, Asian man. And there were some weird reflections of tropes about Asian men being antisocial and more focused on technology than people where I was like, Oh, this is, this is not, this, this is not what I expect. That whole episode was below standards of what I would normally expect. My concern with some, a handful of the episodes here, which is that they introduce a lot of things that are concerning elements, whether it's a, a racial component, which which Misha, you, you talked about in a lot of detail, or 
the technology component and it's linked to the the police and this sort of minority report-esque technology that might exist or other things. It introduces these and it wants them to be important, but some of the episodes don't want to deal with them. They just kind of like, it's a thing. And now we'll deal with this other element and that'll be the end of our story. Instead of maybe saying, well, maybe we don't need it to also have all these other things. You know, like Mm -hmm. maybe the story doesn't need to be about you know, an Asian tech guy who is a bunch of stereotypes living in a house with a, a talking house computer. It, that doesn't need to be the focus. Maybe it's actually just the police who have hired somebody to provide the service and they're taking down this police department in this small town because mm-hmm. then that actually deals with the central con- problem. It's the people that are providing the financing and all of the other issues. And the, I, I still get a little annoyed that we don't deal with the fact that there is an abusive cop. He doesn't get dealt with in any significant way. I mean, they even they even have the uh, the federal marshal who literally says, oh, I'm here because there because this sudden drop in crime in this town is really suspicious and nothing yeah. happens. Nothing. Yeah. Aside from, you know, maybe Elliot, maybe Elliot gets an occasional hookup interest. Yeah. And what I think is interesting is if you take something like the tower job as a counter, right, the, what the tower job, I think, does very effectively, whatever problems it may also have and how it deals with it, its main villain, the, the fellow who runs all the buildings, mm-hmm. it does introduce the immigration issue, but because it introduces it at the very end as a small segment of the story, it's not central to the rest of the story. So we're not supposed to think, oh, well, this was part of the whole story the whole time. No, it is resolved as a a sort of side story to say like, oh, this was also going on, but this isn't the focus. This is our 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 denouement. This is our end, which where we get our happy story. If it had started the episode with that, and then not resolved it, we end up with something like these other episodes we've been talking about. You know, it doesn't need to because the focus is we're just getting the the tower people who are monstrous white people who don't care about anybody. And then there's potential problems with how we deal with trauma in that episode. But the immigration issue is not the central concern of the episode. So I hope that it, this doesn't continue in the later episodes of the season because what I do think ultimately... Um, maybe a source of that problem is writing in a way that thinks about what the problem is instead of thinking about who are the people who actually suffer as a result of that problem, which mm-hmm. is like not immediately noticeable because a lot of the earlier episodes really do care about the people who are actually mm-hmm. affected by these kinds of decisions. And that's why the reason why the double-edged sword job bothers me the most is we have a victim and that victim's like complication is specifically because of a a harassing ex-husband who just so happens to have the power of the police department Mm -hmm. uh, working Mm -hmm. behind him like that would that should have been a a very lovely focus in part because you have already primed me to think that the person who deserves to suffer is this ex-husband so that's that's the that's the person who i want to see stop everything else feels kind of secondary and yep. it feels it feels like that because i feel like someone at some point went i want to write a tech episode so we can solve a tech problem how do we get to that point and thought about all of those things as ways to get to that point instead of thinking about who's actually affected as a result yep. yeah and i think part of part of this too it would be you know the uh, going back to this concern of you know the the person that ultimately gets punished here is a person of color who isn't doing something inherently evil. He's not an evil person. He's yeah. a complicated He doesn't have person. malicious intent. He actually right. thinks that he's helping people. He actually he thinks, thinks he's that he's saving people. people's lives. Yeah. We should have taught him that's not the case. We didn't. Right. They should have taught him because the person they do teach is in the paranormal activity job where they're actually committing crimes I and get the, the nephew... nephew yeah. Get the nephew out and let him go back to school and let him redeem himself by basically letting him walk. He's actually committing crimes, doing bad things, mm-hmm. Be un- maybe p- potentially unwillingly. He doesn't really want to do it, but he's still doing it. He's still complicit. Mm-hmm. He made he made the decision to like, yeah, I'm like, I, I, I will join the family business, I guess, because I because obligations, whatever. But it's still an active choice. And he gets to walk off scot-free. And I don't have a problem with him necessarily walking off. I have a problem with the the unequalness yes. of how this is, right? Because it's clear he's not, tr- he doesn't want to be here. He doesn't want to be doing this, but he's sucked into it because of the family business. 
And wouldn't it be nice if both episodes said, well, maybe we should try to help both of them. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe the guy, maybe the tech guy, he needs help. Maybe he needs like there's this bit in the episode where they're dealing with uh, like they're pretending to be like manners people or whatever that whatever that <laughs> yeah, profession is uh, called uh, so uh like social consultants or something like yeah, that well they, <laughs> they're, they're yeah. teaching him how to talk to people mm-hmm. well maybe they actually put him in touch with some folks like you know some therapy or some folks who can provide him Parker's with actual therapist. resources to help him parker's therapist give him some puppets do it you know you accidentally hit on the thing that ultimately bothers me the most about that episode when you make a show the subtitle of the show of which is redemption you'd imagine Mm. that when someone is given the opportunity to be redeemed and actually deserves it you can give it to them as we mentioned with the paranormal activity job people get that opportunity we gave the nephew the opportunity to decide i don't want to be a part of this anymore and he gets to potentially make his life better and actually like improve as a person we could have given this character the same treatment and we didn't because we wanted him to look like an absolute villain even though the show doesn't make him look like an absolute villain and it felt like very disappointing as a result i hope we do not see any more missteps like that in the next batch of episodes mm-hmm. again it's not going to be perfect but i really hope that they don't they, uh, that there were folks in the writers room who were able to spot some of these things before they made it out of the drafting process and they were able to tweak it like don't bring in the thing unless you're willing to close up it's like what mary robinette talks about with short fiction and closing different story tags like closing code if you don't close it in the right in in the right order it just feels weird it's it's left hanging and the audience is like I think there's there's something missing, but I can't figure... Like, this isn't satisfying me, and I don't know why. They didn't close the tags. Those darn tags. <laughs> <laughs> because it all comes back to programming, right? <laughs> well, okay. Okay, we gotta stop. <laughs> yes, or else we're gonna be here for... It's already an hour and a half of recording. Oh, Lord. What hap- this is what happens when leverage. We need, to ste- we need to go steal more time. Yes, we do. And we will do that at some point. Really what happened here is you all conned me into recording a longer podcast uh, than I intended. <laughs> see what you did yeah. there. <laughs> Very good. Uh, okay. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for joining us today for Screen Scouts. Uh, before we head out, we want to let our delightful guests let us know where their stuff is. So, Mitchie, where can folks find you and your things? Okay, so um, as some folks may know by now, I, I'm stepping down from CIFWA at Science Fiction Fantasy Writers of America as editor-in-chief after a year and a half, uh, because I, or two years, actually, I'm going to be, I am currently a senior editor, soon to be features editor at PRISM, which is a BIPOC-led and BIPOC-focused uh, news organization. Uh, so as Brandon was talking about, you know, who are you want to think about who are the people most impacted by actions that those are the stories that we and voices we try to highlight in our news coverage. Uh, so you can find me on Prism. I am an editor. I'm hopefully we'll have some more time to write in the next uh, next couple of months. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Geek Melange. Uh, which was sort of my little ode to Dune. So I am uh, the Spice Melange. I'm super excited about Dune coming out in October. (laughs) So you can find me ranting on Twitter. Uh, You can also, I have a public profile on Facebook. I don't always post public, but you can find me there. And I'm also on Instagram as Geek Melange. But please, uh, everybody, support, continue to support SIFWA. They are doing fantastic work at, truly making the organization more reflective of what the industry is like. Um, please check out Prism. And if you were in Chicago, come check out Rax Geek Rax Inferno, which is the belly dancing fire performance group that I belong to. Uh, now that things are easing up, we are starting to go back to in-person shows. I have my first live fire performance on July 30th. For the first time since March 2020. <laughs> so if you're in the city, come check us out. We're a Asian American majority, LGBTQ majority performance troupe. Awesome. 
Well, go check out all of Mitchie's things, which will be linked in the show notes as well if you want to find them there. And thank you again, Mitchie, for, for coming. I know it was such a trial to be here. Today, oh, I know. But... <laughs> really so, so terribly hard. I mean, Brandon had to twist my arm on Twitter asking me oh, if I was going to, you know. It's like, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I know you're very busy, but do you have time? I'm like, it's leverage. Give, give me the time. I will make time in my calendar. Well, for listeners back home, thank you for listening today. Uh, if you'd like to, again, let us know what you thought. If you have opinions about the episodes, skiffingfanty.com slash listener suggestions. You can follow us at skiffingfanty on Twitter and Instagram and get the newsletter at skiffyandfanty.com slash newsletter. And as always, if you want to support the show, please go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty. And then other than that, five-star review on iTunes, because that's what you do when you love a podcast, is you go on iTunes and you get five stars, and then you say something silly and put a dad joke in there. So, A-plus for dad jokes. Maybe not dad jokes, but still. No, dad jokes, because dad jokes aren't offensive, and they make us giggle because they're terrible. Fair enough. Anyway, you can find me at Sean Duke on Twitter, SeanDuke.net, and Patreon.com slash TheJoyFactory. And you can find me at The Rising Tides on Twitter, BrandonO'Brien.space, and on Speculate, where I currently GM The Case of the Cindered Seal, a Blades in the Dark actual play miniseries. Awesome. Well, on that note, uh, I just want Brandon to know that during this entire episode, I have been hacking you with a clam. That explains it. Yep. I knew I knew something well was up. Well played. Well played. <laughs> and on that note, awkward ending and scene. <laughs> <laughs>